I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to start in Romans 12, but we're going to move really quickly to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, so as you're turning there, I want to just kind of give a umbrella view of this series that we're going through, talking about how the gospel transforms us. And I want you to know in advance that one of the purposes of doing this is so that you, the listeners, so that the teachers, the different teachers that we will have going through this, that you are invited to wrestle through this together. Uh, Whenever we're looking at God's Word, hopefully it is causing you to wrestle in some way through something. Uh, Hopefully when we're talking about the gospel, the gospel being the good news that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, that He defeated sin, that He defeated death, that He rose again so that you no longer have to suffer the wages of sin. He defeated it for you. And so when we start to examine what does that look like in everyday life, when we say we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, what does that look like as we go through life? And I want to highly encourage you, if you have not heard Will's message from last week, talking about the prodigal son and how God views us, that we are never too lost, that we are never too far away, that we cannot return to him. And it's not that he is just sitting in a lazy boy going, boy, I hope they show up. He runs out to meet us. He runs out to greet us and welcome us back in and wrap us in his arms. And so as we go through this, and we're starting in Romans 12, what does it look like to be transformed? So Romans 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you're saying, Rob, you're reading this every week. I know it's on purpose. Hopefully you have it memorized by the end of the summer because of how often we're reading it and talking about it. What does it mean to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? What does it mean, and we talk about this every week, the difference between being conformed and being transformed. Conformed is the things around you are molding you into what it wants. Being transformed starts on the inside is a work done by the Holy Spirit that transforms you so that you start to affect your outside world or what we call around here your circle of influence, your friends, your family, the people in your house and neighborhoods, your co-workers. How are you being transformed so that the work of God who deserves all the glory is doing a work in the people around you? So what, the big question for tonight is what is the driving motivation that directs your life? What is the driving motivation that is your decision-making process? How do you go through life making decisions in the smallest things that we believe are just mundane, you don't even think about them, decisions? Because we all have things we like doing, and we sometimes will joke about it, right? 
You're like, oh, I went to a Yankees game. Oh, what a great sacrifice you made. I went down to the beach on, on uh, my day off. Oh, that must have been hard. What a great sacrifice you made. So we joke around about it. So the things we like doing, the things we enjoy doing, those aren't always sacrifices. That is basically just us doing what we like. We all have stuff we don't mind doing. And there's just stuff that we're not that annoyed by. But what does being a living sacrifice for God's glory actually mean? How do we submit our decision-making process into that of having our mind transformed into the mind of Christ? I'm so glad you asked. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul is writing the book of Philippians. They're not sure of the exact date. Most scholars believe it is sometime between 60 and 62 AD. The reason that that is important is Paul is in prison for possibly, we don't know the actual details, possibly his last stint at being alive. He is in prison under the emperor Nero, who was just the worst. He was terrible. He sacrificed Christians. He burnt them to light up his garden for parties. He put them in the Colosseum, and people cheered as they were eaten by animals and, and killed. And he hated Christians, and he blamed them for everything. And Paul's in prison during this time. I told you to turn to chapter 2. I just can't get into chapter 2 without reading parts of chapter 1. So in chapter 1 starting, let's go back to verse 12, just to kind of understand the context that Paul's writing this in. Again, he's in prison under Nero. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, that's chapter 2, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. In the pre-service, I got the wrong book, so we're doing way better. Chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, 
your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is demonstrating being a living sacrifice. Notice what he says, for, to, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That should be our goal. It's a tough goal because Paul is just saying, I'm fine with whatever. Both are positive. Whatever it is, God has me here for a reason. But he also understands because he's seen Jesus model this. So as he continues on into verse 27, uh, let's read 27 and 30, he says, whatever happens, I love that word, whatever, whatever happens, no matter what happens to Paul, he's telling the people in Philippi, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me stop there. He's writing this letter to the city of Philippi, and if you go back to Acts, I think 15 or 16, terrible with numbers, he goes into the people of Philippi watched Paul be beaten. He was brought in front of the magistrates and said, the people said, by the way, and what happened was Paul, uh, this demon-possessed woman, uh, followed them saying, these are the people, the, the sons of God, or these are the people that are following the true God. And I love the story because it says Paul got annoyed and cast the demon out, and the people that owned the slave girl that was demon-possessed lost their money and they were furious. And so they go to the magistrates and they say, hey, these Jews... By the way, Philippi, notoriously, historically, and what you see from Scripture is incredibly racist city towards Jewish people. The reason that Paul met them outside the gates was because there wasn't three Jewish men inside the city. And so when they say, these Jewish men, the crowd already is in uproar. He says, they don't believe that Caesar is God. And everyone just starts beating them. Didn't even give Paul a chance to say, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this. They beat him. And Silas, they throw them in prison. That night, Paul is singing. Paul and Silas are singing. An earthquake happens. All the chains fall off. The Roman jailer, who would have probably been a somewhat retired Roman soldier who has a reputation for being unbelievably cruel and mean, thinks that his life is over because he let prisoners escape. And they say, no, 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 we're okay. And he says, tell me about your Savior. Then the magistrates come and say, hey, we're just going to let you sneak out. Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, and they're like, oh no, this is bad for us. They still leave Philippi, but the people of Philippi saw Paul's example of what it is to be beaten, jailed wrongfully, and all of these things and his response to it. So now he's writing, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's saying, hey, when you're suffering for the gospel, don't be surprised. You saw me go through that. You see, I'm still going through that. There's two sayings that we say all the time at Hope Church. Actually, there's about 12, but I'll go with two. One is this. The gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. And number two is worship is a way of life. Worship isn't what you do before somebody stands up and preaches. Worship is a way of life. 
I'll add a third thing. The third thing you'll hear me say regularly is that God's vision and the American dream are always at battle with each other. We are told what we deserve. We are told we have rights. We are told all of these things, and they're true. But what does that look like in view of the gospel always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege? How are we sacrificing those things for others? So what we see in 27 and 30 is that living in unity requires sacrifice. If you're married, maybe you don't know that. If you have children, maybe you're fully unaware. Living in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ requires sacrifice. The gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. But then we get into chapter 2, and this is where we see how the gospel transforms your mind. This passage is called the mind of Christ. The gospel transforms your mind. So let's start in verse 1. Therefore, talking about if we have unity, if you understand you're going to be suffering, all of those things. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That first line of questioning that we go through. If you have any encouragement, if you have any comfort, if any common sharing, if any tenderness and compassion. This is a line of questioning that I have been through on several occasions, except it looked like this. Rob, do you know Zach is your brother? Yes. You know the Bible tells us to love our brothers. Yes. And you know that in our house, we love each other. Yes. Don't hit him. Again. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, hey, let's Unify around these common themes. If we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then let's make joy complete. Anybody can fight with each other. Anybody can fight for their rights. Anybody can do that. How do we demonstrate to the world around us? What can we rally around? What do we unify around? We unify these things that we see in Christ. And he says, by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. By the way, it doesn't say don't value yourself. You are God's creation that he has created perfectly. We'll get into more on that in a second. But value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Paul is telling them. He asks these questions or says these statements to unify them. Because pure unity is only found in Christ, and it starts by us giving up or us sacrificing our own ideas, our own expectations, our own opinions for a greater cause. And in this, this way of looking at the gospel, it is the greatest cause, the cause of Christ. So how do we unify around the cause of 
Christ. That means we have to give up. I remember um, talking to Derek before he got married. Uh, now it's something that I say regularly um, to myself. But I said, um, just know you can't be married to your ideas. You have to be married to your wife. You can't be married to your expectations. You have to be married to your wife. The moment that you are married, then the commitment becomes stronger to your own ideas. It will be noticed. How much more so should we be able to sacrifice our own ideas, our own expectations, our own bias, our own opinions for the cause of Christ, to unify around him? And then Paul says in verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How do we transform our minds? It is by looking at this example that he is giving us here and saying, how do we do this? And then he points out what Christ did. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being Found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 6, what do we see? The first thing he gave up? was his privileges. I promise you, nobody in this room has the privileges that Jesus, the creator, that Jesus, who everything was created for him and by him and through him, had while he sat on the right hand of God as the commanding officer of all angels in the throne room of heaven. And he gave that all up to come to earth as a helpless baby infant, to be cared for by his own creation that in his sovereignty he knew were messed up people. That is giving up privileges. That is giving up everything. It says, being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He gave up his privileges. Verses 7 through 8. He gave up his riches. He went from master of creation to servant of humans. He came to serve. We don't have to look any further than just the disciples whose feet he washed as this act of humility towards them. Those guys were messed up. You and I are messed up. He went from mastery of creation to servant of humans. Verse 8, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Humility is us. Remember when we just went through um, the Beatitudes? What does it look like to be humble and meek? But humility is surrendering our will to God. We see Jesus doing the will of God. Even when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but if this is what you've called me to do, I will do it. He surrendered his will to 
God. Verses 9 through 11, that out of that humility, Jesus became victorious. Amen? And worthy of all of our glory. Jesus knew what we needed because he also knew what we deserved. That is pure love. That is pure love shown towards you and towards me. Again, we are told we deserve the best. We deserve the nicest car. We deserve the nicest house. We deserve to be treated the best at work, even if we're terrible. That's not my fault. It's their fault. We deserve better than you. And that sometimes is a problem because you also think you deserve better than me. God looks at us. Jesus looked at us and knew we deserved hell for eternity. That we deserve to be permanently cast out of his presence. Jesus knew what we needed because he also knew what we deserved. So, why be a living sacrifice? How is our mind being transformed into Christ? Going back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, that phrase, this is your true and proper worship. In view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God has done for you, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. That is true and proper worship. In today's English, it would be translated, it's just common sense. It's what you do when Jesus has done all of this. In response, we should not be saying no to him. First Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit. Sacrifice everything about yourself. And in this case today, sacrifice your mind to him. This is true and proper worship. The gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. So I want to look at three things this evening. That was just the intro, by the way. Just kidding. I want to look at three things for how do we do this. How do we transform or how do we allow our mind to be transformed into that mindset of Jesus Christ when everything around us is trying to conform us into us deserving the very best? How are we then transformed into humility, into the mindset of Christ? So I want to look at one, we have Jesus. And every time we look at Jesus, we're like, he's the ultimate example. So I give up. You can't do that. That's way too tough. Then I want to look at Paul. And we're like, yes. Paul tells us he was the chief of sinners. We know Paul's history. Uh, he, at one point, is killing Christians and leading the martyrdom of other believers um, Paul was a pretty tough guy, so that doesn't, um, still doesn't work for me. And then we have us, the third. How then are we transformed? So I want to look at three different things. Number one, and please write these down, because as you hopefully are getting in the habit of doing, we have a test every other week. Just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> Number one. How do we have the mindset of Jesus? What do we see from Jesus? Number one, Jesus knew that we were lost and desperately in need of God. 
Jesus knew that we were lost and desperately in need of God. I'm going to ask you to turn over to Ephesians. We're we'll spending the rest of our time here in Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus knew that we were lost and desperately in need of God. By the way, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have never made him the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, I hope as we walk through this in Ephesians that this will make sense to you. That is our prayer that um, you will be able to understand what it is to have that relationship and how much you're loved. And if you are someone who's here and say, oh, but I already have that relationship, this is what we need to preach to ourselves every day. This is how we start to have our minds transformed. So starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every single one of us is either has that in our past, that there was nothing that we could do. We deserved eternal separation from God for eternity in hell. And Jesus knew that. We didn't call out to him. He came to us. We were dead. It was over. So Jesus knew that we were lost and desperately in need of God. So he came to earth obeying the will of God. He humbled himself. He became a servant for us, even to death, death on a cross, the most humiliating death you could ever go through. So that's how we see Jesus, how he, his mind works today. That love that he had when he was crucified is the same love that he has today. And if you're here and you have not experienced that love, that is the love that is offered to you. That is the relationship that is offered to you. We move over to Paul. Paul, how does he have the mindset of Christ? He's in prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. And he's fine with it. In fact, he's rejoicing. He's saying, guys... The whole palace guard now knows the gospel. The palace guard is the mixture for us of secret service and special forces put together in the Roman army. They were the top of the top. They were in the palace and around Rome. They were protecting the emperor, protecting uh, the very civilization of Rome. Rome did not have soldiers come in, but the palace guard was in Rome. And he's saying, good news. They're hearing the gospel. It's gone through the whole palace guard. We're like, yeah, but you're going to die. Get out. He's like, no. If God wanted me out in my own experience, he would have let me out. But I'm here, so God wants me here. Here's the thing. As Americans, living in America or whatever it is, we get to choose our own mission field a lot of the time. We don't always get to choose our mission field. A lot of times it is chosen for us. 
And in Paul's case, in this instant, God has directed him to this is your mission field, this prison in Rome. And he says, hallelujah, let's go for it. God has a purpose. Then there's you, and there's me. Yeah, but you don't understand, my boss is a jerk, right? You don't understand my family. Uh, You don't understand my neighbors. They're not that friendly. How are you sacrificing your mindset? Do you see others the way that Jesus saw all humanity? Do you see others the way that Paul saw people wherever he went? I love in Ephesians 6 when he says, my battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against these spirits. The spirits just happen to be using these humans, so I have to have sympathy on these humans because they don't even know what they're doing. And then there's us. My boss is a jerk. Thank you for not amening that, Liz. I appreciate that. (laughs) What does it look like for us in the God and his sovereignty where he's placed you? Do we have that same compassion? Do we see them as lost and in need of a relationship with God? Or are we looking out for our best interests? Are we putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves? How do you view your circle of influence? When you look around you, what do you see? And secondly, what are you doing about it? Number two, Jesus knew he was the only answer. Jesus knew he was the only answer. I say this all the time, but this is my favorite verse. I say it about the whole Bible. But I want you to look starting in verse 4. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. And then verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated on us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Jesus knew he was the only answer. Jesus knew that in order for these sinful human beings who only ever constantly sinned and rebelled against God, their creator, in order for them to have a relationship with their creator God who loved them so much that he was willing to send Jesus, his son, to earth to become that living sacrifice. Jesus knew he was the answer. So he did it in humility and he did it in obedience. Paul. Paul was highly educated. When you flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul goes through this whole list of things that he's accomplished in life on earth. And he says, and it is all as, nicer translations say trash, some say dung. The word there is the Greek word skubala or skubala, we don't really know how to say it because we don't speak biblical Greek because we've never heard it. 
in present-day Greece, it's a swear word. So if you've ever been working construction and you're swinging a hammer and you hit your hand, you're like, oh, dung! Same type of word, possibly. And knowing this church, all of a sudden we're going to start hearing the word dung a lot more. And for some, that's an improvement. But he's saying, all of everything I've accomplished on earth is of zero value. In fact, it's not just of zero value, it's disgusting. In light of what I can accomplish in Christ when I'm serving him. So Jesus is the only answer. So I'm going to give up whatever it takes. I'm going to be shipwrecked and beaten and jailed and imprisoned and eventually beheaded and everything in between. If that's what it takes for people to know that Jesus is the answer, then so be it, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to have joy the entire time. And then there's us. If your circle of influence, your friends and your neighbors were pulled aside and they said, hey, we want to know, I'll use myself as an example, we want to know what Rob thinks is the answer. We want to know what Rob truly believes is the answer. So here's what we're going to do. We want to know how he finds uh, happiness. We want to know uh, where he finds hope. We want to know where he finds Love. We want to know uh, where he finds an uh, accomplishment and where he has a, a sense of identity. And we want to find all of these things out about Rob. So what we're going to go off of is where he spends his time. We're going to break down his time. We can't have a conversation with Rob right now. We can't make any excuses. How does Rob spend his time? What does Rob spend his time watching on television? Now fill in the blanks for you. How much time do they spend on social media? How much time do they spend chasing likes or getting into arguments? How much time do they spend and what do they, have they been watching on TV? What, what is their browser history? What, what, how much time is spent and where is it spent online? And, and uh, what is their phone usage like? And, and how much time are they spending playing video games? Or how much time, are they, and we start to go through and that's, that's what their evidence is. Where do they spend their money? Then they go through that. And then they're like, okay, so now we're going to present our evidence of what Rob thinks is the answer to life based on those things. But do that with yourself. Do you really believe that Jesus is the answer when we start to examine all of those areas and what we're chasing after? Do you truly live out your life as Jesus is the only answer. Number three. This is so important to understand. A lot of times we look at biblical people and we're like, wow, they went through a lot. No thanks. I'm good. That seems rough. I'm out. Or we, we can go through life thinking like, well, eventually I'll do that. I just have to get into the right place. Then I'll do that. Paul gave up everything that he had. That sounds great. You know what I'll do that? Right after I've retired comfortably at uh, 65. Then I'm all in. So number three, Jesus isn't calling you to be uncomfortable. 
He is calling you to be exactly who he designed you to be. Jesus isn't calling you to be uncomfortable. He's calling you exactly who he designed you to be. The part that makes it uncomfortable is that we don't want it. We, as humans, we strive for safety. And if we start to think through the decisions in our life, it's usually based off, once I'm safe, then God can have it all. I brought up and from young thinking like you're only in God's will if you're miserable, right? Like, uh, and that never really stopped. Even when we were getting ready to plant a church and we were telling people like, hey, we're planting a church. Like, man, we want to support you. Like, we're going to Charleston. Like, that's a nice city. Alaska, we'll support you. Charleston, no go. I have a friend who spent years and years uh, raising support to go plant a church in Hawaii. This is not a joke. Uh, felt God very heavily placed on him the call to Hawaii. Hawaii, if you have ever looked at stats, and I don't know why you would, is one of the most lost states. Very, very, very few people know Jesus in the state of Hawaii. He raised exactly zero dollars and zero cents over the course of 10 years. Nobody was going to send a missionary to Hawaii. Oh, that's just easy. Uh, church planners uh, have a very difficult time raising support. If you're, raising, if you're starting a church in another country, great, we'll support you. If you're starting a church here in the United States, like, mm, okay. We're all Christians here. We did it. We are only uncomfortable. And please understand, you will be because if you're going somewhere following what God's called you to be, it does not matter where you go. There will be spiritual warfare and things are going to get uncomfortable real quick. But most of the time we are only uncomfortable because it's not what we want. We strive for safety Christ calls us to sacrifice, and this is a continuing battle every day. I love Philippians 2.13. Paul says to will and to act for his good pleasure, going back to where we started from, what is the driving motivation that directs your life? Those words, to will and to act for his good pleasure, for God's glory, can also be stated, what is your desire and your activity for him, not you. This is something else we say all the time. And I realize we have a lot of guests here, so this is the first time I'm going to act like I've never said it before. So just be like, whoa, that's so good. Whatever you want to do, like whatever your heart truly desires, you do. Anytime somebody tells me this, and some of you have called out on this, oh, I really wish we could. We got this other thing. <laughs> Jose's laughing loudest because I've done this to him. And in fairness, he's done it to me. Rob, I so wish I could make your son's second birthday party. But there's this free dinner at Phil-in Best Restaurant in Town's name. So I really wish I could come, but I got to go to this other thing for work. No, you desire the better food. I'm having a Little Caesars pizza outside in like 98 degree weather. Your desire has totally changed instantaneously. And we do that all the time. <laughs> Sorry, Sal was there. He said it was all right. Thank you, Sal. 
But start thinking through this. Your boss is like, man, I really wish I could give you that day off. But I'm taking it off. Well, you don't actually wish for me to have the day off. But we do this in life. We do this spiritually. Rob, wish I could be at church. God, I wish I could serve you. Jesus, when we say in view of God's mercy, God's mercy was sacrificing his own son on a cross. Jesus' desire was to see people know him. So he was beaten. Knowing he had the power to stop it at any time, he allowed his own creation to murder him in a horrific way to be a sacrifice for you and for me. Paul knew he was a Roman citizen. Paul was a lawyer. He had studied the law up and down, had it memorized. He knew Roman law. He was a Roman citizen. He had rights and privileges not afforded to a lot of, if not all, the other disciples. But he gave it all up to be sacrificed, to be beaten, to give up everything. Incredible discomfort for the cause of the gospel. And there's you and I. God wants my savings account. Hits this. And nothing else shows up in my life. It is all yours. God, once I have time, then I'll be able to serve you. What? A new league? I'm in. We do this all the time with God. God, I would do this for you, but I know you want me to be happy. And that looks uncomfortable. God's vision is always at battle with the American dream. How do we walk into that? Because whatever our desire is, activity follows. To act, to will, and to act. To desire and activity, and it's for His glory, not our own. Jesus is the sovereign creator. He does not make mistakes. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or arguing. Uh, other translations, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Jesus went to the slaughter like a lamb. Paul went to the slaughter rejoicing because the gospel was being heard. We wanted to be known that we were cut off in traffic. We wanted to be known whenever anything that causes us to be uncomfortable happens to us, and I better get 30 likes when I'm telling everybody I know on Facebook. Can you believe I was uncomfortable? I don't deserve that. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. I heard a pastor say, and it hurt me deeply and continues to, when we complain, we attack the very character of God. God is sovereign. He does not make mistakes. The job you have, the neighbors you have, you were placed there to glorify 
God. The things that are going on in your life, you were placed there on purpose. The things that you've gone through in life, whether you did them or they were done to you, they were done when God allowed it for His glory. He's asking you to give them to Him so He can redeem them. How do you come to God saying this? Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author of life. He wrote out your story. He wrote out your life, those trials and temptations and difficulties, all of those things that you go through, all of those things that haunt your past, all of those things you wish you could forget, he allowed to happen for his glory. How are we using them in that way? Have we turned them over to God? Whatever it is you don't want to do is you not sacrificing yourself to God's will. Whatever it is that you don't want to do, maybe you don't want to talk about, maybe you don't want other people to find out about, those are you trying to hold on to those things and not sacrificing them to God's will. Being a living sacrifice is done through living by faith. This just hit me. I was reading a book by a Puritan author. I think it was written in 1649. And I've been in church literally my entire life, attended three different Bible colleges, whatever. This thought has never hit me. And he writes, God grants us faith. How often do we ask God to give us faith and then through the Holy Spirit obey what he's called us to do? I've always thought that faith is me showing how awesome I am when I actually obey him. How often do we pray for God to give us faith and then when he demonstrates his power and asking us to walk through something, he's the one strengthening us through the Holy Spirit, do we obey? Do we call out to him to give us faith? Or do we rely on ourselves? True freedom comes when we live out what God has called us to do. We're told all the time that freedom comes through following God. Turning your life over to him brings true freedom. But the view of Jesus a lot of times we have is that he's just trying to take fun away from us. I I had a dog named Gio. And Gio loved to hunt, a little terrier mix, loved to hunt, loved to kill squirrels, bunnies, you name it. But after a while, ran out of animals in our yard. All the, all the animals realized, not the yard I want to be in. Gio started finding holes in the fence, our surrounding fences, and chasing animals in other people's yards. So I'd call her, she'd come running back, showing me how she got out, get some whatever it took, fix the hole in the fence, and she'd just look at me like, you jerk. How am I supposed to go kill that squirrel now? And then she'd find another way, and I'd call her back, and I'd patch that hole. And finally, I got all the holes fixed up, and we had new neighbors move in behind us. And they had an ill-tempered pit bull named Princess. And this dog was nasty. And it would actually chase Geo around, gnashing at the chain-link fence with its teeth, trying to rip 
the chain link fence up to get to Gio. And I remember Gio looking at me, and I don't speak dog, but he looked at me like, oh, thank God that fence is there. (laughs) And all it took was princess to teach my dog the value and the freedom that can be found in having a safeguard set up. And so when we a lot of times view God and view Jesus, we look at him as, I can't believe you're stopping me from doing that. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. There is an ill-tempered pit bull named Satan. In fact, I've called him a lion seeking to whom he can devour. And when you operate in here, you have all the freedom in the world inside my safe zone. Just stay in my safe zone. We're like, yeah, but there's other stuff in those other yards. And we fight that. When he calls us to freedom, he's calling us to operate under his safety, under his will, under his guidance. I love Paul knew he was in God's will. Again, Jesus knew he was in God's will. And he went willingly. Paul went willingly to be sacrificed. Paul gave it his all. And I want to think about this. When Paul entered into heaven, he was cheered on by people that he had martyred. People that he had overseen their death like Stephen were cheering him on. When we think we're too far gone, like like Will was preaching on last week, we have no idea how much God loves us. You have no idea. If you're here right now and you're thinking, God can't possibly love me, you could not be more wrong. Paul killed Christians, and he was cheered by those very people when he entered into heaven. Then there's you and me. You see, I'm convinced that God's will isn't necessarily a place, it's a mindset. We have choices. Uh, as Americans or Western world, however you want to word it, we have choices. When people would come up to me and be like, uh, working at one of the colleges, <laughs> like, well, just pray for me next year. Uh, my parents said they gave me a credit card, and I'm trying to choose what country I should go to. It's like, that's an American problem. You don't go to Nowheresville in the country of Chad, and a little villager comes up and he's like, hey, can you pray for me? I don't know what country I'm going to go to next year. I'm like, my gap year. Just trying to find myself, like, see what's going on. It's not bad, but are we surrendering our will to God? The will of God is a mindset. Again, we don't always get to choose our mission field. Uh, Often it is chosen for us. How are you operating in God's will? So what I want to do now is how do we start to put this into exercise? In the past, we've always said how you spend your time, your money, and we always struggle with that third part. So what I'm going to use is conversations. We can see how much we are living out our life as a sacrifice to God. All we do is, one, we start to examine how we spend our time. Is our time spent? Is our time sacrificed to God And we say, God, if you are calling me to do something, I'm going to do it. You take priority. The priorities that you've given me in Scripture take priority. One, my time with you takes priority. My time with my wife and my kids take priority. If you're single, 1 Corinthians 7, 
you're the churches. You're Jesus's. Amen? Number three, you are the body and bride of Christ. We'll get into that more next week. How do you serve in a local church? How do you serve the church at large? That's where our time commitments go to. How are we using our time for God's glory? Number two, are we sacrificing our finances? Are we sacrificing our finances to God? A lot of times we look at how much we give God. Wow, I gave God X percent last year. I gave God this last year. View that differently. Say, wow, I kept this much. It's all God's. I kept 90% of what God gave me. All of a sudden, that starts to change how we view giving. Or we say, God, as soon as I make this much money, then I will sacrifice, sacrificially give to you what's best for me. Or, and I've always gone back and forth in conversations over this in the last couple of years, but can, if, if money is just auto-drafted out of our bank account into the church and we don't even really think about it, can we say that that's sacrificial giving? Can we say that our money is sacrificially given to God or what if every single time we give, we stop and pray? God, tell me what I should give. What do I give to you for your glory? How do I serve you in my giving? And then I'm going to use number three, conversations. Are your conversations for God's glory? Your conversations are very revealing just as much as your time and your money. Your conversations really show what you care about. We've said this a couple times. What you talk about is what you love. You do not need to spend much time with me to know that I have a wonderful wife, Tabitha, that I have two boys that are absolutely wonderful to me, maybe not to you. Uh, you will know what sports teams I like, usually before a conversation starts, because the majority of my clothing has the sports teams I like on them. So what you talk about, you love. And what you love, you talk about. So what do your conversations look like? Are they pointing people to God? Are they demonstrating these different things that we've seen that you don't complain, or you don't grumble, or you don't argue? Are they demonstrating that you put other people's interests ahead of your own? And again, I say this, grocery giveaway is very easy to do. I don't know them. They've never offended me. So I will gladly serve them. But what about when my wonderful wife, Tabitha, has done something that, in my mind, wasn't what I wanted? Do I show her that same love? What about my children, who every great once in a while will disobey me? Do I... Extend to them the same grace that I extend to complete strangers. So what I want to do right now for the next couple minutes is just you where you are, pray. God, reveal to me what needs to be sacrificed to you. God, am I lining you up after all my other desires? Or are you number one priority? God, am I choosing to try to make everything as comfortable as possible for me and my family and then giving to you what's next? Or am I saying, God, what do you want me to give? And we'll figure out what to do next. I just heard an amazing story, and I know I've gone 
30 seconds over at this point. But uh, another pastor friend of mine, we were talking, and his uh, daughter is getting ready to go to college. And she's been working very hard all summer long, saving as much money to get ready to go to college uh, because they're not allowed to take out loans. And she came up to her dad, and she said, uh, Dad, who's a pastor of another church, somebody we've had preach for me, said, Dad, God laid it on my heart to give X amount of money. And he said, what do I do? I'm her pastor. I'm her father. I've told her to listen to the Holy Spirit, but that's way too much. You've worked so hard, you're going to college at a very expensive university. But he said, I had this inner struggle of, I've told my child to listen to God, but that's just too much. So I stayed quiet and said, okay, that's what God has called you to do. And she did it. That afternoon, her daughter calls her. His daughter calls her and says, Dad, I didn't even know I got this scholarship. I just got a phone call that I got a scholarship. The scholarship was worth twice as much as she had decided to give, and they flew her and her mom out to California to the award presentation where they did it. And he was telling us, a group of pastors on Wednesday, he goes, I was so ashamed. I've told my daughter her whole life, do what God's calling you to do. And she's like, God's calling me to do this. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's a lot. <laughs> we got college coming up. When's the last time that you gave saying, that's a lot. That's going to hurt. You can't do that. That's not wise. So how do you give your time like that? How do you give your money like that? How do you give your conversations over to God like that? Well, God, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. If I bring up religion, I could get written up. So right now, where you are, let's spend a couple minutes in prayer asking God, God, what do you want me to do? If you're here and you have never accepted Christ as the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, I ask you to make today the day of salvation, that you call out to him, asking for forgiveness of your sins, asking him to be the leader of your life, and please afterwards come and talk to us. We want to have that conversation with you. But right now, let's go into a time of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, your forgiveness. We thank you for the extreme sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, I pray that this isn't just something that we walk away from tonight, but this is a constant prayer of our heart, a constant seeking after you, asking, Lord, what it is, what is it that you want me to give up for your glory, not for mine? I pray that as we go into this time of singing, that we would sing to you out of a thankful, a grateful heart. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here is hurting, if anyone here, whether they know you or not, is hurting, needs to talk, needs somebody to pray with them, that they would not leave here tonight without asking one of us to do that with them. We pray these things in Jesus' name.